Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So what the heck's going on with Banjo lately? He's being such a sneaky snot. He is, first of all, uh, bordering on obese. He's just, because he eats everything. Yeah. Not just food. No, no, no. <laughs> he is, he's still in the the healthy range, but on the upper side of it, like yeah. real upper. Mm. And uh, yeah, no, It this morning I pulled chunks of plastic out of his mouth that he was trying to eat. So uh, yeah, it doesn't matter what it is, he wants to eat it. If it's on the floor, he thinks it's food. Yes. And uh, if it's... Which is weird, because we don't put a lot of food on the floor. No, we're pretty good about keeping food off the floor. <laughs> but um, yeah, he's been even more sneaky lately about trying to steal Haggis's food. Yeah, I noticed that this morning. Whenever he goes to Haggis's bowl, we'll go, ah, you know, and he'll like stop and back off. But lately what he has done, if we're not paying attention or he thinks we're not paying attention, he goes to the bowl and he'll take a mouthful of the kibble, but he won't eat it there. He'll slowly back out of the room and then chew it up in the other room so we don't hear him. Yeah. Yeah, so that's pretty sneaky. You think, I mean, that's pretty smart, right? It's like, smart, yeah. I'm not going to let them see me eat it. I'll just take it into the other room and then I'll eat it, right? But you, he's not smart enough to not eat plastic. I know, I don't so get it. So I, it's, real, it's real questionable what's going on in there. I like how he'll back into the other room too. Like we can't see him if he's backing up. Right. It's kind of like you when you go through a uh, yellow light at an intersection, you whistle because it makes you invisible. Yeah, yeah. That, that is accurate. Yeah that's, yeah. that's what happens. That's what happens. Yeah. If the if the light camera catches me or if a police officer sees me, they'll see that I'm whistling 
And so they they You're know casual. I'm casual. Right. I wasn't <laughs> like trying to run it or anything. <laughs> no, it's just she whistling. Used to, oh, look, she just didn't. Uh, it's fine. She was absorbed in her whistling. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Hey, you go first. Oh, oh, okay. All right. So I was, I don't even know how I got here, dude. Sometimes this just happens where... All of a sudden, I am researching something, and I don't know how I got there. So anyway, let's talk about the five smallest countries in the world. Okay. One of my quandaries about this whole procedure, Mm -hmm. do I start with number five and go down to the smallest country in the world? Because most of us know what the smallest country in the world is. Or do I start with the smallest country in the world and then go to number five? What did you decide? I didn't. You, you, so you're okay. I'm still just sitting here, like <laughs> let's, like this. Let's <sighs> let's count down to the number one smallest country. Okay, okay. So we'll start with number five. the The fifth smallest country in the world is San Marino. San Marino is landlocked, surrounded by Italy, and it's said to be the world's oldest surviving republic, which is really kind of cool. Archaeological finds suggest that it was a settlement as early as the 5th century BCE, and it was officially consolidated as a political entity in the late 1200s. Its constitution was laid out in 1599. Where is this located? In Italy. It's in Italy. It's in Italy. It's a country in Italy. Correct. Okay. Which I I had stated. I'm sorry. Already. I was in my mind. I was thinking about whistling. You were whistling? Me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's about 23 square miles. Wow. And has an estimated population of 34,000. That's about 2,000 more than Bangor, Maine. Well, that puts it in perspective. Right? Because this is not a big city. I thought to myself, like, what can I compare it to, right, mm-hmm. to to show how small the population is? And so I was like, well, okay. So I asked Siri how many employees Costco has. And uh, Siri was all like, Costco employs about 233,000 people. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, that's not a good one. No, no. Mm-hmm. So then uh, I tried a bunch of other things. And eventually I was like, oh, wait, Bangor. Mm. So anyway, uh, why the employees of Costco came to my head first, I do not know. It'd be cool if Costco started their own country. (laughs) That's right. The United States of Costco. (laughs) They mostly export. Mm. Um, Tourism dominates the economy of the 61 square kilometer republic. And uh, more than 3 million visitors go to San Marino every year. Which, when you consider the size of it, whew. In 1607, a paid postal service was opened to all residents. And the first postage stamps in San Marino were issued in 1877. So San Marino has always paid tribute to cultural and historical events and personalities by way of their stamps. And because there's a very limited production of San Marino stamps, San Marino is a Pretty big draw for the stamp tourist. Is it? It really wow. is. I'm is, not even I didn't, being silly. I didn't realize stamp tourism was a thing. It's a thing. Wow. Um, as well as uh, collectors of rare coins. Mm. So that's pretty neat. Abraham Lincoln has a connection with San Marino. He expressed his admiration for San Marino in a letter to the captain's regent in 1861. And he said, although your dominion is small, nevertheless, your state is one of the most honored throughout history. Hmm. And so they granted him citizenship. 
they were like, cool, you're you're now officially part of us. Wow. We love you. Wow. So, which I thought was just really neat. Let's send them let's send them a letter and see if they'll make us an official um, citizen. I don't think that our letter would carry the same weight that Abraham Lincoln's letter would have carried, but yeah, sure, let's do that. Let's give it a try. Okay. All right. Number four. Number four. Tuvalu is in the South Pacific. It's an independent nation within the British Commonwealth. And Tuvalu is located roughly halfway between Hawaii and Australia. So you can kind of picture like it's south there. It's got a total area of 9.9 square miles. And it gained its independence in 1978. So the Tuvalians are P- Polynesian, and their language is closely related to Samoan. It is home to around 11,500 people, and they are the only ones in the world that speak their native language. Part of their anthropological history is they know that the people who settled there originally were settled there for some length of time mm. uh, before they were colonized by by other countries uh, because they had that time to create that very unique language. I find that fascinating. Mm. Tuvalu has the smallest economy of any country in the world due to its size, its lack of resources, and especially its remote location. It's so small that the Funafuti Airport, which looks a lot like Funfetti, by the way, but it's not. <laughs> the, the airport is right in the middle of town, and it gets three flights per week. But when a plane is coming in, there's a siren that goes off no. to let people know so that they'll get off the runway. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Well, that's charming. <laughs> Isn't it? Um, so the only flights that come in to Tuvalu are from Fiji. And the entire country of Tuvalu is run on cash. No credit cards mm. accepted at all. And they use the Australian currency. Okay. But you can't get you can get, but it's very difficult to get Australian currency in Fiji, which is the only place that you can fly to Tuvalu from. So it's a little complicated. Wow. Wow. you got to really plan this trip in advance. There are no ATMs. No ATM machines? No, no ATM machines. <laughs> she hates when I do so that. So when you've got to take an air flight into Tuvalu. Bring your Aussie bucks. Did you even notice that I said air flight? No. Ha, you're so weird. <laughs> Air flight. It's just, that's a normal phrase for me, a normal term, air flight. All right. So this comes from the website Everything Everywhere. The highest point in the entire country of Tuvalu is only 4.6 meters or 15 feet above sea level. So because of the way that it was made, uh, it's part of an old volcano that is kind of into the sea now and there's coral and stuff. So just a little bit of worldwide ocean rising would mean that there's no more Tuvalu. No kidding. Yeah. Let's move on to number three. Number three. Nauru is a tiny island country in Micronesia. It's just northeast of Australia and it's got an area of about 8.1 square miles. Wow. It is the smallest republic. Additionally, uh, because of the population of 10,000, it's the world's second smallest population. Nauru has no official capital, and I'm guessing that's because it's so small, it just doesn't have one. There are government offices, and they're located in a specific district, but that's not really the 
capital. It's just where those buildings are. Okay. Mm. So so it's like these rooms over here will be our <laughs> governmental offices, yep. and then downstairs it'll be for anything more local. That's right. Uh, Though it's hard to have anything not local on an island as small as this. In October 1967, an agreement granting Narunian independence was concluded. But it's had a long road and it continues to struggle. So with World War I, there was an Australian force that occupied Nauru and removed most German nationals that had previously taken over the island. And in 1920, Nauru became a mandatory territory with Within the framework of the League of Nations. Now, this Mm. is according to Britannica. When World War II happened, it brought another occupier when Japanese forces arrived. And over that following year, over 1,200 Narunians were taken uh, to serve as forced laborers in Japanese military installments. That was nice of them. Yeah. And then uh, Nauru became the target of American bombers. Mm. And they suffered air attacks for the next two years. Can you imagine an island eight square miles in total area being bombed for two years. Yeah, what do you, where do you go? Where do you go? At the war's end in 1945, fewer than 600 Narunians remained on the island, and a quarter of the natives had died. Mm, wow. Phosphate mining was a, a huge economic resource for the island for a large part of their history, mm. but Phosphate runs out, and it ravaged the interior of the island, leaving about four-fifths of the island uninhabitable and uncultivatable. Wow. So how much land is of use there? Well, we'd have to do the math. What's four-fifths of 8.1 square miles? Oh, God. Math is hard. I mean, stop asking me math questions, I just thought maybe, you know, you had the answer there in your voluminous research. Just make a pie in your head and then take all but one-fifth of that pie away. That's a small pie. 1.62 miles. Yeah. Yeah. That's teensy. So it's not great. No. No. Virtually all food, water, and manufactured goods are imported. And Everything. Pretty much everything. Everything. Pretty much everything. Where do they keep it, though? That's the thing is it's it's rough for sure. And under Australia's tough border security laws, asylum seekers who are intercepted trying to enter Australia by way of boat are taken to offshore processing centers, quote unquote, one of which is on Tuvalu. So the situation then becomes that there are refugees, people who are accused of no crime, who are warehoused for arbitrary amounts of time indefinitely, and the conditions are not great. The United Nations and rights groups like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have documented and condemned these illegal detentions. And as of 2019, there were still 350 people awaiting quote-unquote processing. Oh, man. That's rough. It's not a great situation. And for such a tiny island that has so little else going for it, it's just just rough history after rough history. Monaco. We were just talking about Monaco this morning. Monaco is located on the Mediterranean Sea within France, not far from the border with Italy. It is a city-state with an area of only 
0.81 square miles. I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. But it's 19,009 inhabitants per square kilometer, a.k.a. 49,000 per square mile, makes it the most densely populated sovereign state in the world. Try to picture 49,000 people per square mile. No. Whoa. No, I can't. Um, All right. So historically, Monaco was part of France, but in 1215, it became a a colony of Genoa through a land grant from Emperor Henry VI. And then the Grimaldi family settled in Monaco in 1297, and ancestors of that family have controlled the principality for over 715 years. That makes me want to read The Alchemist again. (laughs) I think we definitely should. And plan our The Alchemist road trip. Yes. That's something that's been on our bucket list for a long time. Yeah. That and 11 million other things. (laughs) Monaco's chief industry is tourism. But the state has no income tax and low business taxes, so it does well as a tax haven for individuals who have established residence and for foreign companies that have set up businesses and offices. Social life there, uh, though, revolves around play. There are lots of like boating industries. There's expansive moorings. It would have to be offshore if they're going to play because 49,000 people per square mile or whatever you said. I mean, (laughs) I just picture the entire population of Monaco standing up all the time because there's not enough room to lay down. And then there's, of course, gambling. So the idea of opening a gambling casino in Monaco belongs to Princess Caroline, and it was built in 1861. No kidding. Yeah. It's a gorgeous complex of gambling, and it started off as being a casino and also bathing houses. Mm -hmm. So kind of a, a sassy little combo there. It's not cheap to hang in Monaco. All right. And number one, number one is, of course, Vatican City. Take me down to Vatican City. That's all I got. Okay. Uh, Vatican City, also a city-state, and the second of only three. The third city-state is Singapore and doesn't even come close to making it into the top 10 smallest countries Mm -hmm. in the world, which is really pretty impressive when you think about it. Vatican City is the only country that is reasonable to put into square feet. (laughs) Wow. It's 4,700,000 square feet. That's also uh, known as 109 acres, 0.19 square miles, or 44 hectares. It is encircled by a two-mile border with Italy, and the Vatican City is governed as an absolute monarchy with the Pope at its head. Mm -hmm. Mussolini, the head of the Italian government, signed the treaty on behalf of King Victor Emmanuel III in 1929 that allowed the Vatican to exist as its own sovereign state. The Vatican mints its own euros. It prints its own stamps. It issues its own passports and license plates. It operates media outlets and has its own flag and its own anthem. Most of its economy is supported by museum admission fees, stamps, and souvenir sales. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Because it is uh, one of the most visited cities in the entire world. Of course, the unique characteristics of a city-state that sets it 
uh, part um, is that it's independent. It's sovereignty or it's independence. It means that it has the full right and power to govern itself and its citizens without any interference with outside governments. City-states were actually a pretty big thing during the classical period of Greek civilization, and the term for city-states, polis, came from Acropolis, which served as the governmental center of ancient Athens. Is that where we got Minneapolis from? I believe so. Wow. Yeah, but Minneapolis is not a city-state. Well, that would be true, yeah. But it does have the word polis polis in it. it. So that's something. It says it right in there. Hmm. Boy, you're (laughs) snarky today. (laughs) The the Vatican City is really interesting in that it is, it's a city, it's a country, it's like the Catholic headquarters. (laughs) Um, Popes wouldn't leave there for hundreds of years. It was like, nope, we're not going anywhere other than this tiny city-state place. This is where we stay. Um, And it's all within a two-mile border uh, within uh, Italy. So that's pretty freaking cool. Anyway. I'd like to have my own country. Yeah? Yeah. Just like right in inside of Maine or? No, inside this house. Oh, inside the house. Just inside this house mm-hmm. where I can um, I can create my own laws. Okay. And uh, tax structure. Sure. You could do that. No, but I, I don't want to pay taxes. Oh, you don't, you don't want to pay like Maine taxes. Right. I don't want to do that. Okay. So you just want to be like, I'm independent. Mm-hmm. Taxation is theft. You want to, you want to go down that road? Wow, you are snarky today. (laughs) And now, that thing in the middle. Today's thing in the middle, once again, from the Freaks group on Facebook. You glorious people give us so much to talk about. (laughs) What are some silly song misunderstandings that you've had? When I was a kid, Sarah wrote, I was convinced Another One Bites the Dust was about dust bunnies fighting and biting each other. (laughs) I also thought I like it, I love it was about applesauce. Number five, Stephanie said, On Californication by Red Hot Chili Peppers, I thought the line hardcore soft porn was hot coleslaw for them. <laughs> hot coleslaw for them. Yeah, I get it. Uh, Heather said, I thought Paul Simon Kodachrome was car and Rome, and Mama Don't Take My Kodachrome Away was I'm going to get my car and Rome away. <laughs> Number three, Brendan said, and I think we all thought this at one time, blinded by the light was revved up like a douche. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. Yes, 100%. Number two, Sarah says, as a kid, (laughs) as a kid, I sang, you picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille, with 400 children and a crock in the field. (laughs) Yep, I thought it was 400 children, too. I was like, whoa. Girl, it's not a clown car. Okay. (laughs) And number one, Katie writes, I used to think our lips are sealed was Islands of Seals. (laughs) That's great. We love you, freaks. Oh, my God. We like to think we're the Costco of podcasts. You may not need everything we offer, but you can't beat the price. This is The Box of Oddities. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. 
Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Miranda sent this uh, email. In fact, it just came in. Uh, Kat followed me back on TikTok. And I totally fangirl screamed, even though I have never posted on TikTok. Um, I found out while lounging in the bath, drinking a bottle of wine. That's why I follow you on TikTok, (laughs) is I can get on board this lifestyle. My son ran in thinking I was hurt or terrified. The second I said, cat followed me back on TikTok, he understood and slowly backed out of the bathroom while saying, 
that's really exciting. <laughs> My 10-year-old son, Devin, is a huge fan of the podcast, too. I was a teen mom, 16 when he was born, and things have not been easy for us. We both listened to the podcast to relax and forget about how tough the world can be. Thank you for reminding us mm. both that uh, we're not alone and that there are other people out there that are just as odd as us. Thank you so much. It's really easy to forget that there are other people out there after this past year. Mm. I mean, <laughs> I feel that hard. I do. Yep, pretty much. Thanks for that email, Miranda. That's great. All right, this is going to be really rough because um, I can't really pronounce these words well. Oh, no. Uh, it's Actually, it's a Russian name. Here we go. Maria Vasilyevna Oktiabraskaya. I'm just going to call her. You know, I buy it. I, <laughs> everything that you just said sounds great to me. I'm just going to call her uh, Maria or, okay. or maybe MVO. MVO. Maria was born in a poor Ukrainian family on the Crimean Peninsula. She had nine brothers and sisters. She lived a pretty typical life for the time. This was in the early 1900s. Her first job was in a cannery. And this was her very first foray into uh, employment. She was thought of by many of her superiors as a very diligent, resourceful worker. Um, she then later became a telephone operator. And at the time, that was a really prestigious job. It was highly, a highly sought after position. And, well, it was uh, essentially like a communications job, right? Yeah. I mean, because you had to understand stuff. It wasn't just like beep bop boop. Yeah, it's not just putting beats in a can or something. It, Though early telephones would have been just two cans. That's Interesting true. that she went from canning <laughs> to. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. That is really ironic. <laughs> right? Uh -huh. So, anyway, because of her determination and resolve, she got this job. In 1925, she married a man who was a Soviet army officer. He, this was his, he was a, um, a career military man. And they had a wonderful marriage. She was a loving, supporting wife. She was very proud of her husband and began to acquire a, a genuine interest in his job and in all things military. She became involved in an organization called the Military Wives Council. This was the same point where she was, she was training to become a nurse in the army. Oh, very cool. So she was really moving up. She's an advancement kind of gal. So because she was always hanging around in the military environment, she started picking up lots of skills like how to use weaponry. And, oh. and how to drive military vehicles. This was just her hobby. You know, that's what she hung out with her husband and learned how to shoot a bazooka. It's just what she did. She <laughs> said, quote, marry a serviceman and you serve in the army. An officer's wife is not only a proud woman, but also a responsible title. Oh. Well, Second World War rolled around. And uh, when the Eastern Front opened, Maria was evacuated to Siberia for her own safety. And while she was there, her husband, unfortunately, was killed by Nazi forces near Kiev. Now, because she was in Siberia, and this was the early um, 40s, 1941, it took two years after his death for her to learn about it. Oh, that's awful. It took two years for that information to get to her that Nazi forces had killed her husband in uh, August of 1941. Oh, I don't like that at all. That makes me feel all kinds of ick inside. Now, this was devastating news to Maria, obviously. They had a very close relationship. 
So for a long time, Maria kept to herself. She didn't interact very much with uh, her family or friends during uh, this, this period of mourning. It was an extended period of mourning for Maria. And then she just got to a point where she was fucking pissed off. <laughs> she decided she wasn't going to sit around and take this. She decided that she was going to exact revenge on the Nazis for killing her husband. Oh my gosh. She was determined to avenge her husband's death. Her family thought she was crazy, but Maria was determined. She was a very determined woman. So Fire what, pigeons? What she did. Oh, that would have been great. I would say this is even better than fire pigeons. Okay. The first thing Maria did was sell off all of her possessions. Everything she had, everything she owned, she sold. She then took the money and bought her own tank. <laughs> yes. It was a T-34 medium tank, and she painted on the side of it a name. She painted Fighting Girlfriend on the side of her personally owned tank. Now, like I mentioned before, Maria had spent a lot of time with her husband and other military members, and she had picked up a lot of skills. One of them was how to drive a tank. That's amazing. But because she was not a member of the military, she could not get in uh, the tank and go to war. So... What she did was she petitioned the Red Army to be allowed to become a member of the tank corps. Now, they laughed her off. Silly woman, no, you can't do that. But that did not deter Maria. She was so determined to avenge her husband's death no matter what that she petitioned the State Defense Committee and Joseph Stalin directly. Oh, wow. Now, she was 38 years old at the time. In her letter to Stalin, she wrote... Quote, my husband was killed in action defending the motherland. I want revenge on the fascist dogs for his death and for the death of the Soviet people tortured by these fascist barbarians. She said, basically, if you allow me the opportunity to fight in the Red Army, I will donate my tank to the Red Army, oh. but I must be the one who drives it. She's 38. 38. She's a year younger than I am. This is 1943 And I once wrote a letter to Hannaford grocery stores asking them to please bring back the Gardein mandarin orange um, chicken style bits. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty much my big accomplishment. That was it? <laughs> so. Well, you took it upon yourself to lead the charge. Now, say what you want about Joseph Starlin. He was a guy who understood a good PR campaign. <laughs> sure. He understood the value of propaganda, and he recognized the value of this request. He immediately approved her plan. Maria then underwent an intensive five-month training program, even though she probably didn't need it. Um, even though Stalin himself had signed on to this idea, most of Maria's compatriots, of course, well, all of them were men, and uh, they put very little faith in her abilities. I'm sure they weren't all nice to her. No. Yet she persevered, she completed her training, and she was posted to the 26th Guards Tank Brigade, which is part of the uh, 2nd Guard Tank Corps in September of 1943. I'm just, I keep thinking about, like, what, uh, like, in Gone with the Wind, you know, what women could do to help mm. the war effort was, yeah. like, give them their jewelry and stuff. Sure. And in this case, it was like, I brought a tank. <laughs> she was given the duties of driver and mechanic. Soon... Maria, in her tank, 
the fighting girlfriend emblazoned on the side, took her uh, T-34 medium tank into battle. Oh, my gosh. I like I want a piece of art with Maria and her tank. (laughs) Still, even though she completed the training, many of her fellow tank corps, they saw her as they said, this is just a publicity stunt. Yeah, a little more than a than a joke. But their attitudes were about to change. It was October 21st, 1943, when Maria joined the fighting <laughs> in a small village. I'm sorry. I'm so excited. Like, I, I know that something amazing's coming. And I'm just like, <laughs> like I am, I'm almost goosebumpy. <laughs> I'm like, yes, tell me. Tell me the story. <laughs> the battle was raging by the time Maria's tank corps arrived at the front. The fighting was very hot. The Germans had a distinct advantage over the Russian army at the time. Because they had uh, several machine gun nests set up on slightly elevated ground, which gave them, you know, the high ground. And they were shooting down onto the uh, Red Army and just wiping them out. From that position, the machine gunners were mowing the Russian soldiers down. The Russians would attempt to advance only to be cut down again by a hail of Nazi bullets. This went on for hours before Maria showed up with her tank corps. Maria decided this was her moment of revenge. She slowly maneuvered her tank into the intense fighting. But as her fellow soldiers took up defensive positions, Maria just kept going. She drove her tank straight toward the machine gun nests in the artillery guns. As she got closer to the machine gun nest, her tank was hit by gunfire. She disregarded orders. She leapt out of the tank in the middle of this intense firefight to repair the tank. So she repairs the tank, jumps back into it, continues approaching the machine gun nests and artillery guns. She sustained more hits the closer she got, but she kept going. And then she just drove her tank right over the fucking Nazis. (laughs) (laughs) She just ran them over. A large, like dozens and dozens of Nazi gunners. They were crushed beneath Maria's tank treads. That must have that must have really felt good. I wonder, you know what? I wonder if she stopped and backed over him a couple of times just to make her point. This disabled all the machine gun nests and the artillery guns nearby. Single-handedly, she did this. She was then promoted to the rank of sergeant. <laughs> and all of a sudden her tank corps is like, Ooh. you know, we always thought you were really good. Yeah. Uh, it was a month later. The 17th and the 18th of November, that Soviet forces had captured a small town in German territory. During the attack, her legend was elevated even further because of her skilled tank driving. On the 17th of November, she took part in an assault on uh, German positions. Again, her tank was disabled by mortar fire. An artillery shell actually exploded near the tank and it caused the tracks to uh, to come off. She and a fellow crewman again jumped out and repaired the tank in the middle of this hot firefight. Her fellow crew members provided cover for them while they fixed the tank. They jumped back in the tank and rejoined the main unit, again winning this battle. A couple of months later, on January 17th in 1944, Maria was fighting yet another attack as part of uh, the Leningrad-Novgorod offensive during the battle. She drove her T-34 through the German defenses and destroyed resistance in trenches and the machine gun nests again. She just drove over the Nazis. Unreal. Her tank crew also destroyed a German self-propelled gun. The tank was hit by German anti-tank shells. Again, the tracks came off. They were immobilized. She jumped out of her tank again in the middle of the, of the firefight, 
Heavy fire, small arms, and artillery shells bursting all around her. She managed to repair the track, but as she was back in the tank, she was hit in the head by a shell fragment and lost consciousness. After the battle, she was transported to a Soviet military field hospital near Kiev. She remained in a coma for two months, but finally passed away on March 15, 1944. She was posthumously named quote, a hero of the Soviet Union in recognition for her bravery in the battles that she fought. That is the story of Maria Vasilyevna Oktyabrskaya. That is something amazing. Like that. One intense Russian tank bitch. That is, that is incredible. The, uh, so much of what she did during, during the wartime mm. is impressive. But the idea that she just got herself there yeah. in the first place, that's mind-blowing. Well, she bought her own tank and yeah. then she drove it over the Nazis. That's just that, what I'm going to do. That must have felt so good. Oh, I would imagine. You know, uh, she obviously had to sacrifice a lot mm. in order to achieve this level of revenge. When she broke through their defenses and mm. just started running over the Nazi machine gun nests, mm. I just picture her in her tank, you know, <laughs> just laughing her ass off, sipping a tab, you know, <laughs> having a good time, maybe maybe lighting up a cigarette, just watching the show. That was incredible. Well, I, I know how you love a good revenge story. You know I do. <laughs> you know I do. Well done, Maria. Most of my information came from allthat'sinteresting.com and... Wikipedia. Oh, I wanted to mention earlier today, I was on the Freaks Group Facebook page, mm. and it had been a while since I had been on there, and it's just amazing to me how much it has grown and mm. how great the community is. How many people are asking each other for boosts? Yeah, there's over 6,000 members now, and they are so supportive and and so kind. And you know, Facebook is not a place known for its mm. kindness. No. <laughs> so it's really impressive how few issues we've had in the group. And that's, uh, I mean, in large part uh, due to our mods. We have amazing moderators in the group. We sure do. Sam, Sonia, Kat, Katie, Aaron, and uh, and of course me. I mean, I, I pop in and I'm all like, hey, stop that. <laughs> but uh, for the most part, it's it's just them doing amazing stuff. And y you all just creating this yeah. community and environment of not shittiness. I love it. Yeah. And boy, do we need it nowadays. A mm -hmm. place one can go and uh, not be bombarded with shitty attitudes. Yeah. So thank you for that. It's glorious. I'm very proud to be associated with that uh, with that movement. And, and if you haven't had a chance to join the Freaks Group, A Box of Oddities podcast, uh, you can search it out on Facebook and submit your request. One of our fine moderators will check in and, you know, you have to answer a couple questions and then you'll be you'll be one of us. There's just one question. And it's basically, do you promise not to be a dillweed? Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know. No shit baggery here. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> so, yeah, check it out and join us. And thank you so much to those who have. And we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. 
Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.